I realized about 25 years ago not to live stuck in my head. And one of the things about Western education is that it teaches us how to think. And it teaches us how to reason and to break information into tiny pieces and, you know, question. And it's almost that we've been taught and trained how to think, but we haven't been trained how to stop thinking. We haven't been taught how to create space between thoughts, how to live in the present moment, how to bring our full attention into what we are doing, how to connect with life through, you know, our sight, through our hearing, through our taste, smell, touch, etc. So there's many things and it all ties back to the breath because once you have your attention on your breathing, you're gently soft. Hey, I'm Brett Gornick. I'm Jason Lobig. Welcome to the Live Better Podcast. Best day ever. We are coaches, trainers, retreat leaders, and wellness advisors, but didn't start our careers doing this. Jason worked in public accounting, and I worked in corporate retail until starting our dream business in which we help people from all different industries pursue their best day ever every single day. The goal of this podcast is to interview both each other and other professionals making an impact on the world on how wellness is the fuel to do whatever it is in life you want to do better. This podcast is about teaching people to actively pursue their purpose and how to use self-care to do it. We're here to show you how the best day of our mindset is available to anyone at any time, no matter your circumstance. It's your choice and we're here to encourage you. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and even YouTube. You can also listen to our podcast on www.livebetterco.org. Have the best day ever. Live Better podcast today with Patrick McCune. And this one is one that, honestly, I will say this in all truth. This is the number one episode I've looked forward to. So for all our past guests, um, one has to be the best. It's like picking your favorite child. Um, and I'll dive into why that is. Um, but if you've been following my journey for a while, I've had a lot of dental issues. Um, and in the last about year and a half have really realized that they have spawned from breath. Um, and Patrick, funny enough, I was, I've been, and we were talking about this a little bit before the episode, but I've been mouth taping for about a year now. And I think, I first heard about that through a functional um, doctor that I go see in Chicago around the root canals that I had been having and what was going on in the biome of my mouth. And I was also looking into oxygenative therapy for my teeth. And so I was Googling books on that oxygen therapy and your book came up and I wasn't sure what my doctor told me, which book to get yours or the other one. So I bought both. Wow. And <laughs> as that happened, I just happened to read your book. And so that's literally how I found out you. And I think it was just one of those like divine alchemist style interventions. Um, And it was so funny because I had been mouth taping for probably four or five months, focusing a lot on breath, understanding it. And then I read your book and I'm like, oh my God, this is everything I've been doing plus 400 things. And I'm an athlete and I'm a runner and you're going to learn more about Jason and I's journey through running and performance and all of that. And so it's been just a serendipitous thing. And when I reached out to get you on the show and you said yes, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's always 
It's always where, you know, that's really where, when it happens. It's always great that way. A book that you never expect the content and uh, it falls into your lap. It's even better. Yeah, it is. And I mean, the, you know, when I opened the book, which, I, which I'm looking at right now, and I saw that Dr. Mercola was the foreword, I am a huge fan of his. And uh, so like immediately I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And then honestly, again, this is just full transparency. I didn't even really research who you were until about page 150. And then I go, oh my gosh, this is like, this guy's been on the London Reel. He's been on all sorts of different shows. He's helped athletes. And the more and more I looked into it, the more legitimate it became. And then since I've read this book, I have gifted it to probably 15 or 20 different people that have all sorts of different, you know, different whatever symptoms you might call it or conditions. Because I'm like, honestly, like if you just read the last like 30 pages of this book and do the activities, you're going to see results. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny because one of the people I recommended it to has been going to a lot of different places trying to find care for, um, essentially just a, a very reactive gut. They have all sorts of issues, what they, whatever they eat, they've gone on elimination diets, all that stuff. And it's been about three months since they've read the book. And I've probably gotten a text a month saying these activities have made me feel better than I've ever felt in my life. So wow. let's start with where did this all come from? Like, how did you start doing this? I came across it in 1998. I was a kid growing up and uh, was a mouth breathing kid and into my teenage years, into my early 20s. And I was always struggling for breath. I had asthma and uh, taking quite a bit of medication and a really hard breather. You know, I was the kid that, you know, I go to a friend's house and I'd be eating dinner and the friend's parents would be disgusted with me because I was eating and breathing at the same time. Because when, when, you, when you have nasal congestion, you have no other choice. And it's very common with asthma that you have nasal congestion. And if you have nasal congestion, then you're more likely to breathe through an open mouth. And then your sleep is, is you're twice as likely to have sleep problems. So I was tired. Mouth breathing is more upper chest breathing. It's reducing oxygen uptake in the blood. It's activating more of a stress response. So when you throw into the mix, you throw in poor breathing a highly strung individual, a teenager, and is bad enough anyway, but falling asleep in class, not able to concentrate. And, you know, I was very driven. And, you know, I did have ups and downs, but I really put in the work. I got, got into university, got my grades, and I came out. I was in the corporate world. My background is economics. But, you know, I couldn't handle the stress in the corporate world. But it wasn't just the corporation that I was working for. It was actually just my reaction to it that, I didn't have the resilience to cope with this. And I read a newspaper article and the newspaper article said two things. You should breathe light. And I knew this was not me because I could always hear my breathing or my breathing was fast or it was a little bit of an effort and breathe through the nose. And I'd always, you know, wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. So that evening I taped my mouth. This is back in 1998. And I wore nasal dilator. I wore breed right strips on my nose and I taped up my mouth. The first morning I woke up feeling, yeah, I was kind of getting used to it. It was the second morning that I woke up and I felt I had the best energy I had in 20 years. I couldn't believe it. And my wheezing, once I kept nasal breathing and doing the breathing exercise to open up my nose, because you can open up your nose very easily by simply holding your breath. My wheezing reduced in 50% 50 in that one week. So 
I knew I was onto something and it was for me, you know, it was one of those moments that it was really, really beneficial for my life. I mean, another tangent, I also was an economics major and in the corporate world before starting. So we'll just continue to go down that path of of similarities. And then, and then, you know, you know, Jason and I had a, had a meeting about five and a half years ago and just said, Hey, we don't want to do this anymore. And we started what, what is live better. Um, I also had the same thing. Um, I noticed my mouth breathing because my wife was telling me, Hey, your, your breathing is super annoying when you sleep. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I never thought anything of it. And I didn't know, I honestly can't trace back to where it started. But like I mentioned, my, I have had three root canals and my, I take super good care of my teeth, brushing, flossing, everything you can possibly do from an oral hygiene perspective, but they were just withering away. And, mm-hmm. um, so I also learned about the taping and then from your book, I also really understood and how the nose was impacting everything because a year prior to that, I was training for the marathon and also noticing that my breathing wasn't as good as it could be. So I got, and I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this, but I got my deviated septum fixed um, because it was really, really off and Mm -hmm. that immediately helped. Um, mm-hmm. and so I would love to hear your opinion on two things. And these are going to be a couple personal questions to start thoughts on that surgery if necessary. And then I still do wear the breathe right strip at night because I still feel congested in the middle of the night sometimes. And I do your breathing exercise pretty much every morning to take an exhale, pinch the nose and walk and I'll do that normally twice. And after the second rep, it's like magic that my nose is open. But I still do wake up congested. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the um, deviated septum, if that is something of truth, um, if it's necessary for those that have a poor septum and can't breathe, and and as well as the breathe right strip, if that's helpful for nose breathing, especially at night. So I suppose with deviated septum, it's very common. It's about 60% of the Western population. And basically, this is the bone and the cartilage, which is dividing one side of the nose to the other is crooked. And uh, if we have quite a deviated septum, of course, it impacts our ability to breathe easy. Now, I'm not a major fan of referring people for surgery. Um, I think it's very important to try and uh, reduce inflammation. It's very important to restore nasal breathing. And literally, you know, somebody comes into me, they could be a rugby player, some MMA fighters or whatever, their noses can be all over the place, but it doesn't mean that they can't learn to breathe through it. Now, there will be times that, of course, the septum is so badly deviated that maybe the only option is to do the surgical route. But normally what we do is we go through the breathing exercises and I have people do that exercise you described to open up the nose. Don't do it if you're pregnant. Don't do it if you have any serious medical conditions. But if you want to open up your nose, decongest your nose, simply take a normal breath in and out through your nose, hold your nose, and walk or jog, even jog. Jog while you hold your breath and keep holding your breath and keep jogging and keep jogging and holding your breath until you feel a medium to strong air hunger, fairly strong air hunger. Then let go and breathe in through your nose and get your breathing under control. Wait about 30 seconds or a minute. 
do it again, do it five or six times, your nose is open up. Now, your nose is open up based on a reduction of inflammation or, you know, what exactly is going on there? Nobody seems to know, but there's probably a number of factors taking place. Once we get breathing through the nose and we're improving bre- functional breathing patterns, and the one thing about the human nose is that the more you use it, the better it works. Now, it's normal that we don't always have a fully decongested nose. So during sleep, the, the side of the nose that's closest to the pillow usually is congested. So we always use typically one side of the nose, and it's what's called a nasal cycle. They switch from the left side of the nose to the right, vice versa. And um, so I wouldn't be expecting a fully, you know, a fully open nose. And if you hold your breath, yeah, you can pretty much open up your nose fully. Or if you do physical exercise with the mouth closed, even though your nose runs and, you know, at the start, you know, bring a tissue with you. Um, but yeah, physical exercise with the mouth closed will help open up the nose. Breath holding will help open up the nose. But normally one side of the nose is a little bit more congested than the other. Now, the risk with nasal surgery is what's a condition called empty nose syndrome. And this was first identified by a Mayo Clinic doctor, Eugene Kern, back in 1994. It's when, you know, if too much of turbinates, and turbinates are the bony cartilage kind of structure, spongy structures inside in the nasal cavity, if they are removed, they create a condition that when the individual is breathing through their nose, the person feels as if they are drowning. And this can lead to a lot of anxiety and it's even led to suicide. And it's kind of a controversial area because I don't know if, you know, all ear, nose and throat doctors agree that it's there. But yet, if you were to talk to anybody with it, which I have done, you know, I would be in no doubt that, yes, there's something there. And it's just one of those things. The human nose, you know, we we want to use it. And really, um, Brett, this should be coming back to childhood. 25 to 50% of studied children persistently breathe through an open mouth. It's affecting the growth of their face, their jaws. All mouth-breathing children develop crooked teeth. Their airway is negatively impacted. Um, the aesthetics, you know, an attractive-looking face is a nose-breathing face. Like, I'm a mouth-breather. I was a mouth-breather. Nobody ever said to me, Patrick, breathe through your nose. Despite the mouth, the mouth does absolutely nothing in terms of breathing. You know, and despite this, and this has been debated in the dental industry since 1909, and I get very frustrated with it because dentists, you know, they should be the first ones that are aware of the negative impact of mouth breathing. Mouth breathing is a dry mouth. A dry mouth, there's increased bacteria. There's more likely to have gum disease and dental cavities and bad breath. You know, the orthodontist, if the orthodontist fixes the teeth, and by the way, Straight teeth don't make a good-looking face, but a good-looking face will generally create straight teeth. It's not just about straightening the teeth. There are there are orthodontists who are absolutely wonderful, and they get this. And there, there are orthodontists who want to do the easy route, extract teeth, remove teeth, um, straighten up the teeth, put on brackets, put on wires, and no consideration for the airway. And oftentimes... When teeth are removed, we have to consider this, that we need to have an adequate sized mouth to house the tongue. And if we have two or four extractions, now the jaws are made smaller. And as a result, there's not enough room for the tongue in the, in the mouth. And the tongue then is more likely to encroach the airway. And then we are at a greater risk of sleep apnea. So there's a whole lot going on there. So yeah, 
you know, that's, I suppose, in terms of deviated septum. And now, since I went off on such a tangent, I can't remember the second, second question. So if you want to hit me that, with the second that's question. That's all really there. good. You actually answered my next question, too, which was around the alternating breath of the nostril, because I've done a lot of research on that. And I have that dramatically, like throughout the day, sometimes I can only breathe out of one side. Um, and the more research I've done, the more research I've realized that that's, that can be normal. Um, the next question was... What I would say, sorry to cut across you. Yeah, what I'd say, ahead. Brett, is build up your bolt score. That's you know? that. Yeah, I want to get into that. And the other thing is rinse out your nose with saline solution. Yep, I do that. Yeah, I do that do once a day. And that is the most amazing thing for me because I have so much crap, like literal like craters sometimes come out of my nose. Uh, and it's amazing. Well, what um, you want to do question, is, and I hope... I hope nobody is eating their dinner listening to this, but uh, <laughs> you, you want to snort that saline solution. So literally, I just get a cup of water and get Celtic sea salt or grey sea salt, which is unrefined. Put in about a quarter a teaspoon of it into a boiled boiled water, allow it to cool, pour the solution into the palm of one ha- one's hand and snort the solution up one nostril. But you want to get it right down the back of the throat. You want to get it right down the back of the nose, hock it, spit it out, because bad breath it often originates right at the very back of the nasal cavity and if you can get the water and the salt water right back to the back of the nose where the nose meets the throat and that will clean the nose so a combination of keeping the nose clean breathing through it breath holding and uh, improving the bolt score yeah those so when i so well really quickly what do you think about the breathe right strip at night and then you know, it's, we, we would use it if people need it. And we would only say that you need it if, for example, you feel suffocated breathing through your nose. So if the air hunger is too much. But if an individual doesn't have air hunger, we wouldn't suggest it. Now, we use nasal dilators during sports because that guy with the, the deviated septum, you know, as mine is, and I've got one nostril smaller than the other, I've got a nose that's all over the place. And it's this is coming back to surgical operations. I had a surgical operation on my nose in 1994. But the curious thing about it was that nobody told me to breathe through it afterwards. And, you know, you might say, well, who's that stupid idiot? He's after getting his nose fixed and he still doesn't use it afterwards. Well, do you know, that's normal. And it's normal for the thousands of adults and children who children in terms of getting their adenoids removed. They typically don't breathe through their nose after adenoid surgery. And the outcome is short term. And with adults, getting their noses surgically operated on, which is all very fine, but not breathing the, through the nose afterwards. And, you know, this is where ear, nose and throat, it would be tremendous if there was follow-up intervention. And it would improve their outcomes because we know with children with sleep apnea, with sleep disorder breathing, there's a 65% worsening of their sleep within three years unless nasal breathing is restored. And that's from Dr. Christian Gimeno, who's considered to be the founding father of sleep medicine. But yet there's no respiratory physiology, no respiratory rehabilitation post-surgery. And that's that's another one that needs to be addressed. Yeah, anecdotally, I had the exact same thing. I had a deviated septum really bad from taking a soccer ball, elbows mm. off the nose for 20 years. Um, so I finally had mine fixed. And what was really interesting is after you get this relief because there's nothing there, so you can breathe through your nose, but because that's not your default breathing pattern, you don't go back to using it. And on the single side of the face, it's interesting because I'm a side sleeper. 
I sleep on the left side of my face, but I think that I started doing that as my left nostril airway got closed off. So my deviation was like 95% shut in my left nostril. So probably like a good case for the surgical fix, but I still sleep on the left side. So like my left nose, my left nostril still feels more closed off than my right, I think, because that the pattern never really changed. Yeah, and that's very true. And the only disadvantage, I've spent 20 years as well sleeping on my left-hand side, so it it causes a flattening of the face on the left side. So at least you're married. You know, I'm I'm nearly 50 years of age now, so I don't really care if I've got a flat left-hand side face (laughs) and a normal right-hand side face. These things you don't give a damn about once you've passed... 30 years of age. So yeah. <laughs> so just something to bear in mind that it's actually quite normal to switch from left to right, left to right. But uh, yeah. So one of the, one of the things you talk about is the bolt score. And mm-hmm. as I read your book, um, I was coming off of a lot of marathon training. And so I ran the marathon last year at sub three hours, which is like sub seven minute mile, which you would think would correlate to a pretty decent bolt score. But as I'm reading your book, you talk a lot about the, the paradigm sometimes of the quote unquote elite athlete that dies of a heart attack or that gets sick or that can't breathe well. Um, and essentially you're just training something that doesn't work right, but you just have enough willpower to train it and do it. And it was so interesting because right after I was after I read your book, I've been doing pretty much running is still hard. All of my biking, I do nasal breathing. Um, but my bolt score, the first time I did it was like an eight. And I was like, oh my God, like this is not good. I am one of those cases. So the things that have helped me a lot have been the mouth taping, the um, just walking, breathing through the nose, biking, breathing through the nose. Can you explain the bolt score? Um, and maybe we can do a little test for our listeners on how to, um, assess it. Sure. So to measure your bowl score, you'd want to be sitting down for about five minutes and, uh, you just, you need a timer. So, so maybe your phone or whatever, take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose to stop. So once you exhale, so you basically, you take a normal breath in and out through your nose and hold your nose. And time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles? And then let go and breathe through your nose and your breath should be fairly normal. So it's not the length of a maximum breath hold. It's basically you take a normal breath in and out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold your nose and you're timing it in seconds. How long does it take for you to feel the first stress, definite desire to breathe Or even you might feel a contraction of the diaphragm and then you let go and you breathe in through your nose. Now, the bolt score gives you a good indicator of functional breathing patterns. So, for example, one paper by Kiesel, and it's a very understudied field, you know, but there's more and more papers and studies coming out about it. Kiesel is a professor of physical therapy from one of the universities in the United States. I think it's Evansville, but I'm not quite sure. And he looked at 51 individuals and he asked, could we have a simple screening tool to assess functional breathing patterns? And his conclusion was the bolt score. He didn't call it bolt, but it was pretty much that. And four questions from the functional movement screen. Because 
his conclusion was if your bowel score is above 25 seconds, there's an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. So literally the minimum bowel score should be 25 seconds. We look towards a goal of 40 seconds. But the key here is if we have a lower bowel score, we typically breathe harder, we breathe faster, more upper chest breathing, uh, greater degree of breathlessness. So I suppose some athletes will testify that, you know, they're training and no matter how hard they train, they still seem to, they're plateauing, you know, they're, they're not. And also they may notice that they're, they're running alongside their peers, but they are breathing harder than their peers. And there's an energy cost associated with breathing. You know, if we are doing physical exercise and if we have to breathe excessively to maintain that, that pace, there's an energy cost associated with supporting the breathing muscles and the breathing muscles also are more prone to fatigue and if the breathing muscles get tired which 50% of athletes it shows that it can happen blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm but the other thing about this is that functional breathing is necessary for functional movement and functional movement is necessary to reduce risk of injury 87.5% of people who pass for example the functional movement screen I know the screen has its critics but, you know, I would I would say the same is going to apply for any screen on movement. But in order to have functional movement, you need to have functional breathing. And to assess if you have functional breathing, measure your bolt score. It gives you a good indicator. Because ideally, our breathing should be in through the nose. Our breathing should be light. It should be slow. And it should be low or deep. Because the diaphragm breathing muscle is not just for respiration. The diaphragm breathing muscle is also playing a role in stabilization of the spine. So it's playing a role in stability. Um, so, you know, it's, it's playing in terms of that relationship. It's not just about breathing, but it's also about movement. What, um, Patrick, when you're, so breathing for me, I feel like is so subjective and kind of anecdotal. Mm. The bolt score is one performance marker when you have an athlete that seems to be doing well. And I think, you know, this is always the struggle with coaching is when you get somebody who's talented, how do you get them to see that there's the next step and the next level? Um, especially if this is kind of a new introduction to them, because it's not like an increase in max bench press where it's just so tangible where you get this immediate effect. Um, it's more of like a pattern development. What other performance markers do you measure when you're working with somebody on their breathing? Like does heart rate variability, heart rate recovery, like what other types of tests besides the bolt score might you do for an athlete to tangibly or anyone, to be honest, anybody who's interested? Um, what might somebody do to measure progress in terms of how well their nasal breathing is going. And you could split that between athlete and just, hey, I'm trying to fix a teenager's breathing pattern or, or a child's breathing pattern. I suppose, you know, there's a couple of different ways there. Um, when I'm looking at a person's breathing, I'm measuring their bolt score. You know, it's, it's going to give me an indicator. It, like it's nothing is perfect, but at least it gives me a good indicator. If somebody comes into me with a bolt score of 10 seconds, I know there's issues there. You know, they are gassing out too soon during physical exercise. Now, if they have a bolt score of 10 seconds, 
I know that they will have a typical respiratory rate and pattern that they're more likely to breathe a little bit faster. They're more likely they don't have a natural pause following exhalation. Their breathing is a little bit more upper chest. Their breathing is a little bit more likely to be irregular. So their breathing is not ideal. And, you know, it depends really on the motivation. Like there might be some people that say, well, your breathing pattern is going to affect your sleep. Because if you breathe faster and harder, you're more likely to snore. It's not just the airways and airway diameter and the compromised airway, which is contributing to resistance to breathing. We have to consider flow. If somebody is breathing hard during the day, if their breathing is a little bit faster, well, their breathing is going to be faster during sleep. And if they have the mouth open during sleep, you know, they're going to have lighter sleep. They're faster breathing, shallow breathing, more likely to have sleep apnea. They're waking up feeling tired. So I suppose we're looking at it depending on what the person wants out of it. Um, If it might be somebody else coming in about focus and concentration, I'm showing, well, here's a way to improve pre-match competition, you know, preparation. That I want to activate a flow state. I want to bring you into a state of relaxation and intense alertness at the same time. And we do specific breathing exercises to downregulate, to calm the mind. But then I do specific exercises to put the person into a stress state, doing breath holding, to increase blood flow to the brain, get spleen contraction, increase you know the state of alertness, and put the individual open up their nose, open up their airways, and put them out there. So coming back to it then, I think heart rate variability is really the probably the more objective measurement in terms of resilience of the human being and a great measurement of stress and a great measurement of recovery. And pretty many of the exercises that we do increase heart rate variability. For example, reduce breathing volume, the breathe light exercise, whereby you're, you're breathing less air to create that air hunger. That will improve heart rate variability. Now, as you do it, HRV can reduce. But after it, HRV will increase after the exercise. Nose breathing during sleep. Like we've 200 instructors worldwide. The feedback that we get from students that are doing it, you know, many are wearing aura rings or wearing different devices. They're feeding that information back to us saying that their recovery is much better. Their sleep is deeper. Their HRV is the coherence is improved as a result of nose breathing during sleep. Nose breathing during physical exercise. Like if I'm working with a bunch of guys, rugby guys, for example, these are alpha males, these are big guys, I'm, I'm going to turn them blue. Because if I say, oh, lads, here we're going to do is a few breathing exercises, of course, they're going to say, you know, this is, this is not for me. This is for tree huggers. This is for those, those idiots that go around with the brown sandals or whatever. So what I want to do is I want to make them feel the difference. I'll get them sprinting using breath holding. And, you know, the science is starting to catch up on it. Like there was a study, for example, using repeated sprintability. And this might be a measurement for team sports, for example. And they got 21, I think it's 21 rugby union players. And yeah, 21 rugby union players, professional athletes during peak season, divided them into two groups. They put... 10 or 11 into the experimental group and 10 or 11 into the control group. The experimental group were doing 40 meter sprints on a breath hold. Same exercise as the oxygen advantage. Take a normal breath in and out through your nose, hold your nose and sprint for 40 meters. And you had a departure every 30 seconds. And uh, 
their repeated sprintability, which is a, is a performance indicator in team sports, it's your ability to do an all-out effort followed by a very brief recovery. Their pre-trial, they were able to achieve about nine reps before exhaustion. And the experimental group who were doing two sets of breath holding of eight reps per week, not a whole lot, by four weeks of practice, they increased their repeated sprintability from nine to 14.8 reps. Now, these are professional elite rugby union players. They were 21 years of age during peak season. Typically, if we get gains of a half percent or a one percent, it's huge. But to increase their performance indicator from nine in around nine or nine point five or whatever to 14.8, it's significant. Now, the control group, they were doing high intensity interval training. So they also were doing um, repeated sprints, but they were doing it with normal breathing. And their repeated sprintability increased from 9 to something like 10.2. So there was some small gain there, but nothing near what the breath-holding um, team were doing. And, you know, it's coming back. So it's um, the, the objective here is that, yeah, people might say, well, I want to be able to measure this. Well, go for a run with your mouth closed. And when you start feeling the snots are all over the place and you're feeling as if you're going blue and you're suffocating – you have to ask then, well, what's happening? You know, you're running with your mouth closed. Your air hunger is greater. But this is what forces the body to make adaptations. Nobody ever considers about training breathing. But yet it's breathing that often imposes the limits. And the application about this breath is sleep, focus, concentration, functional movement, functional breathing. You know, think about, you know, science again, Professor George Dallam from... Uh, one university in Colorado, can't remember which name it is, He, but if you put in D-A-L-L-A-M, and he's a well-known triathlete in the United States, and he works with elite, elite athletes, and he started nasal breathing six years ago, and he was intrigued by this because his recovery was better. So he did a, you know, a small study, uh, he got 10 recreational athletes, and he got them to breathe exclusively through their nose during all physical exercise for six months. And then he tested them after adaptations were, had taken place. These individuals were able to achieve 100% of their work rate intensity, nasal breathing versus mouth breathing, but they had 22% less ventilation. You know, so it, like there's an energy cost associated with breathing. And if we are breathing inefficiently, we're wasting energy unnecessarily, especially with long distance endurance events. And like for sprinting, we'd be tending to do more the breath hold exercises to force the body into an anaerobic state to improve buffering capacity, etc., to delay lactic acid and fatigue. But then for endurance, we want to be thinking about how to stay aerobically for longer, how to increase oxygen uptake in the blood, how to increase oxygen delivery. Um, you know, so we can, there's many things if we, if we look at breathing from different perspectives, I think, yeah, it's, 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 it's there. What, what are some of the endurance specific um, exercises that you might work with? Like for instance, a marathon runner on, because what's interesting, you were talking about doing the breath holds for sprinting. So it was a single breath hold 40 meter sprint yeah. essentially with only at like every 30 seconds till you, Correct. till you're exhausted. Yeah. When you're yeah. thinking well, about. I just go through that one a little bit because the, the protocol in the study is very taxing and we have a similar <laughs> protocol <laughs> and 
we've we've cut it back a little bit. On the first week, we have our athletes do breath in, breath out, and sprint for 40 seconds. Sorry, sprint for 40 meters. And they've got a 30-second semi-active recovery, gentle walking before they do it again. And we do and five it, reps. Breathing in between? Yeah, yeah, of course. Breathing in between the 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they do five reps per set. Yeah, I'd be sucking air through the top of my chest. It'd be coming out of my <laughs> yeah, trap. You know, it's actually feasible enough. But, you know, we do, we, we have a 30 second gap, which is timed. But uh, in the protocol of the study, they had a departure every 30 seconds. And we do five reps in the first week and we do it every second week. Sorry, every second day. One set every second day. Whereas the protocol of the study, they had eight reps in the one set. And then they had a 10 minute rest before they did another set of eight reps with a departure every 30 seconds. So I think, well, I suppose these guys are professional athletes and they're really pushing them. So, yeah, you you could, you know, that's a very interesting one to do. And, you know, you can adapt these so much. Like a guy could say, well, I'm on a bike, you know, how could I bring it in? Or you're talking about endurance. I think it's really important for endurance runners to realize how can you breed to optimize alveolar ventilation? So if we think about the small little air sacs in the lungs, the alveoli where gas exchange takes place, if we breathe fast and shallow, we have to bear in mind that proportionately we waste a lot more air in what's called dead space. That every breath that you take, if you take one breath into your body, not all of that air gets down into the small air sacs. The last 150 milliliters of that air stays in the nasal cavity and the throat and the bronchi and the bronchioles. So if you have an athlete, say, who is breathing, we'll say 20 breaths per minute, very, very light pace, 20 breaths per minute. And we'll say they are breathing shallow. They are mouth breathing, fast breathing, upper chest breathing. We'll say their tidal volume, just to give you an example, is 300 mil. So, you know, small, less than normal tidal volume. They have 20 breaths by 300 mil, which is giving six liters of air. It's coming into the body. But if we subtract dead space, 20 breaths multiplied by 300 mil, subtract dead space of 150, that gives a minute ventilation of three liters. This individual, even though they've brought six liters of air into their body, only three liters got down into the small air sacs. Now, if I asked them then, well, I want you to breathe through the nose and I want you to take fuller breaths, but I don't want you to overbreathe. So I want you to reduce the respiratory rate, but allow the tidal volume to increase proportionately. So say, for example, we bring it from 20 breaths down to 12 breaths per minute. And we allow the tidal volume then to increase proportionately to 500 mil. We're still taking six liters of air into the body. But when I subtract dead space, we're increasing alveolar ventilation from three liters to 5.1 liters. So, you know, there's a 20% improvement there. So you think of the athlete who's going and they're running 26 miles. They typically will mouth breathe, fast breathe, shallow breathe. They're wasting a lot of air unnecessarily. They're going to be drying out the entire upper airways. They're drying out the lower airways. Um, they're more likely to be in, in terms of flow state. You know, you're less likely to be in flow state with mouth breathing because it's more likely to be kind of an agitation of the mind rather than that flow state in terms of having that concentration and alertness. But I think, you know, really the big one is that if you train, at least spend some of your training with nasal breathing, with nose breathing, because the nose imposes a resistance to your breathing, it makes you breathe less air. 
So you are training with less air. And by breathing through the nose, it's adding an extra load onto the breathing muscles to help strengthen them so they're less likely to fatigue. By breathing through the nose, you're forced to breathe less air during physical exercise. This increases the gas carbon dioxide in the blood. You're exposing the body to higher carbon dioxide in the blood. You know this because you feel a greater intensity of air hunger. Because the feeling of air hunger during physical exercise is not because blood oxygen saturation is dropping, but it's because carbon dioxide is increasing. But what we want to do is, we want the individual that's endurance athlete expose themselves to higher carbon dioxide in the blood in order to reduce the chemosensitivity of carbon dioxide and that then we can reduce their breathlessness so they can do a given event with less breathing and that's going to be a saving economically so in terms of breathing we can improve the efficiency of breathing but we can also improve the economics of breathing and less trauma when we talk to individuals who do their physical exercise with their mouth closed their recovery is always much better. When I'm when I'm thinking through that, it all makes perfect sense. When you're training somebody at the beginning of this process, and yes. they just take marathon running, for example, because I, and this is just like definitely selfish for me asking, but like I am a total like type two athlete. I, I would rather sprint um, and go all out for a brief period of time, but um Last year when I was doing the marathon, obviously was trying to make the switch over to very like type one movement. And what I consistently found was, and I think, you know, this is, this is not only breathing specific, but as soon as I started to run, my heart rate would climb into zone three or zone four, almost automatically, even if I was running slowly. And even while I felt pretty conditioned, but I was not paying a ton of attention to trying to nasal breathe only as a training strategy. So when you have athletes, whether they're biking or running or whatever, um, at the beginning, how do you balance or how often per week would you have somebody implement nasal breathing as a strategy when even for like easy runs, for example, that you don't want to be taxing from a muscular standpoint, how often would you add in nasal breathing? Because I would imagine that in somebody untrained, that would make their heart rate go up just from the it depends. It depends on the intensity of the air hunger. So if if I'm working with an athlete, I'll typically ask them to do about 50% of their training with the mouth closed. And oftentimes when they're feeling fatigued, so you can add, you could just, you know, you could set up a nose breathing run when, while they are recovering. And um, because nose breathing typically will reduce the intensity at which you can run by about 10%. But this is just the initial stages. So initially when you switch from mouth to nose breathing, it's more difficult because the feeling of air hunger is stronger. But if you keep breathing through your nose while doing physical exercise, the air hunger diminishes. But with athletes, we can't take the we can't afford to step, you know, take a step back. So what I'll say is do 50% of your runs with your mouth open, as you do, and do 50% or even part of your runs with the mouth closed. For example, a warm-up should never be with the open mouth. And even during the warm-up, you know, you're doing very light intensity. Have the idea of breathing light, slow, and deep. 
you're breathing in through your nose, but you're taking the air a little bit fuller, you know, deeper into the lungs, but not taking big breaths. You don't want to sacrifice the biochemistry. So it's breathing light, breathing slow, breathing deep. This is improving alveolar ventilation. This is improving oxygen uptake in the blood. And also in the warm up, bring in some breath holds. And then during the early stages of the run, you know, maintain nasal breathing. If, the, if it's getting too difficult, well, then you could switch from, say, for example, breathing in through the nose and out through the nose to breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. So initially, you know, you, you can shift, increase the intensity of your pace and breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. And then if you're going to shift it again, you want to go mouth, mouth. And then after a period of time, especially if you're really well warmed up and you've got a rhythm of your breath, and really that's what it's about. It's allowing the breath, breath to find its own rhythm that then, you know, there will be a pace where you have an optimal pace whereby you can sustain nasal breathing. Now, the other thing about nasal breathing is that it's going to be influenced by the size of the nose and the nostrils. And this can be race related as well. Like if you, for example, if you've got an African-American runner, they, they can often have a really well-defined nasal cavity and larger nostrils. And they can condition there so they won't feel the same degree of suffocation. As for example, me, I've got a deviated septum, I've got pinched nostrils. So for runners, it's going to be your degree of air hunger during physical exercise is going to be influenced by two things. One is your boat score, because it's your everyday breathing that influences how you breathe during physical exercise. If you have an individual going around with his mouth open during the day and irregular breathing and having the mouth open during sleep, that breathing pattern is going to translate into poorer breathing during exercise. So we need to fix everyday breathing. So it's not just about switching to nasal breathing during the run. It's about breathing through the nose when the individual is watching television, they're on their laptop, they're taking a walk, they're asleep, wear the tape, for example. Um, so coming back to the two things, the bolt score, the higher the bolt score, the easier it is to sustain nasal breathing during running. The second thing is, the better the nasal cavity, the better the entry of, you know, the nasal entry, the easier it is to sustain nasal breathing. So some people, if they've got a deviated septum, what I'd say is they get a nasal dilator and we're going to bring her out, bring out her own nasal dilators for sports, plastic device that you put up into the nose based on the cotton maneuver to help open up the nose, open up the airways so that you can sustain nasal breathing. So I suppose it's going to vary individual to individual. But I would say to people, it's really a case of quality over quantity. And at the start, if you're a recreational athlete, do everything with your mouth closed and go easy for the first 10, 15 minutes. Really make sure that you have a nice warm up. And when you feel nice and warmed up, then start increasing the intensity and only go as fast as you can maintain nasal breathing. Let your nose determine the intensity of your exercise and push it a little bit that you feel it's a challenge, but at the same time, it's not going to be excruciating. Now, if you're an elite athlete, of course, you're going to do your training with part mouth breathing. And then there's times to add an extra load onto your breathing, switch to nose breathing, or you could do a high intensity run with breathing in and out through the nose, bring in some breath holding. All of these things are good. Yeah, that, that is, there's so many good things. Um, 
you talk about what you just mentioned right there, which I think is an interesting thing. And you talk about this in the book. You give like Michael Phelps as an example um, about how his body type, he was destined to swim. So he's lucky that he popped in a pool versus Usain Bolt, who is very much his facial structure is advantageous to running. So it's an interesting thing to look at that because what where my question is going to go is as you are raising a child and you are, and, and I want to, you know, think about this from the orthodontics perspective, from the way they're sleeping. And, I, and I've looked at studies about lightly pinching the lips closed when they're young so that they breathe through their nose. If you're looking at that, like, can you, could you see a six-year-old kid and say, I know that this kid will be a better endurance runner than that kid, just based off their structure? Well, you're not going to necessarily tell if they're a better endurance, but you are going to tell. You'll have some idea in terms of airway. If you see a child with the mouth open and the, the face is slightly longer, if they have a high narrow palate, if their jaws are set back, the maxilla is a little bit set back or their mandible is a little bit set back, the lower jaw is set back, the airway is compromised. And you know, if we look at the athlete population, we typically see pretty good looking individuals. Okay, there's a few exceptions, but in the main, they're pretty good looking individuals. They have functional faces. Their faces, if you take, think of the caricature of a typically strong male, you know, and you know, it'll go for females as well. How does the cartoonist describe them? They'll, they'll draw a pair of jaws on them, almost like steel girders because it's a symbol of strength. Now, you look at my jaws, and you see that, you know, as a child with the mouth open, my nose is bent because my maxilla isn't set, far back, set forward enough. My mandible is lower back, you know, and it's, it's almost a chinless, and chinless because of a habit of open mouth breathing. And this really is where the dental profession have so much to gain, and I've no idea why, why dentists... And why the dental industry hasn't done this for kids, because it's shocking. Yeah, I mean, I just, to, to piggyback off that, I never, ever was told by my dentist. And I, yeah. I told my dentist, hey, I mouth breathe that night. And they didn't say anything about it. It's like, it's yeah. mind blowing to me. It's, yeah. That it's, and since I've done it, so I've switched dentists to a much more holistic dentist and told them about everything that I'm doing and they still don't even implement this. So like I'm literally educating my dentist. Like I gave my dentist your book. I was like, think about how, like just how much my mouth has become better since I've done this. And it, it's just like, I mean, you know, but you look at the, you know, you look at industries like that and they're so dialed in on just what they do that they're not thinking yes. about how the entire body impacts that thing. Like you look at a knee doctor, they're not going to look at how your hips are out of alignment and that's causing stress on the knee. They're just going to try to fix the knee. So it's like, and what I get from your stuff is like, it is a holistic thing. And the, the, what I, what I, we've talked a lot about performance, Jason and I are super dialed in on that. We train people every day. It's like part of our thing and we're implementing breath work and all of that. And it's just, it's amazing. Where does this go in, re, in regards to longevity, um, stress, um, the non population. 
And, and okay. obviously I know the same things are, are fitting, but like for those that are listening to this that aren't trying to go sub three on a marathon, but just want to feel better and live longer, how does this impl- impact that? And to that point, if somebody has a facial structure that is not advantageous to nose breathing, are they just fucked or is it something that they can still maintain this in a way in which where they can give themselves the best chance? Well, one of one of the best things I switched 26 years of age was switching to nose breathing during sleep, waking up feeling alert. As one guy said to me, he says, you know, what does it mean to wake up feeling alert? Well, this morning I started work at 4 a.m. and I was reading complex material and that's alertness. <laughs> and I'd never have been able to do that before. You know, so it's now 6, 6 p.m. So this is my whatever, 12th, 14th hour. Um, I don't normally work 14 hours, but I'm typically a long, I'm an early riser. And that's because of a better sleep quality. Now, there, there is no doubt that if you have somebody that's having snoring and sleep apnea, it's exerting a tremendous stress on that person's individual, on that person's health. It's sleep apnea is related to dementia. It's related to stroke, high blood pressure, cardiovascular events. Um, and you know what? Sleep apnea, the risk of it is increased with mouth breathing and the risk of it is increased with a lower boat score. And I'll tell you this, if you look at a paper by Messino, a Harvard-based medical doctor, he used breath hold time to measure one phenotype in sleep apnea called loop gain. And individuals with a low breath hold time, they have an... They have a strong chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. As we said, carbon dioxide is one of the influencers of breath hold time. But it means if the individual stops breathing during sleep, that if they have a strong chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide, when they resume breathing, they resume breathing with such exaggerated ventilation that it's disturbing, for example, you know, CO2 in the blood, the brain isn't sending the signal to breathe, the output from the brain to the upper airway with dilated muscles is reduced. So, Without going too technical, just my point is that our functional breathing is influencing our sleep. And if we don't get decent sleep quality, that is going to influence longevity. Now, if you were to measure it, it's really coming down to heart rate variability. And individuals with sleep apnea, whereby they are stopping breathing for at least 10 seconds or more during sleep. And, you know, in one paper published in the larger scope, individuals who are mouth breathing, and they're relatively young, 45 years of age, with mouth breathers, they had 52 events per hour. And with nose breathing, it was 27 events. The individuals who were mouth breathing, they had 52 events per hour. The individuals who were nose breathing, they had 27 events per hour. 27 events per hour is still too much, but it's a hell of a lot less than 52 events per hour. So how can we improve heart rate variability? And heart rate variability is a clinical measure of vagal tone as a you know a very good indicator of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system nose breathing is key nose breathing slow breathing and low breathing so as i said you know nose breathing during sleep nose breathing during light physical exercise gently slowing down your breathing to create air hunger breathe light exercises slowing down the cadence of your breathing you know spending a little bit of time during the day maybe breathing in for five seconds breathing out for five seconds stimulating the vagus nerve, exercising the baroreceptors. So we have pressure receptors in the major blood vessels. 
and they are constantly monitoring our blood pressure. And if our blood pressure increases, the baroreceptors respond by sending immediate messages to the blood vessels to dilate and the heart rate to come down. So our heart influences our breathing, but our breathing has an even bigger influence on our heart. So as we get older, heart rate variability reduces. But if we are prone to different conditions, we have reduced heart rate variability and that's not going to help. So I would say yes, that through the breath, by improving heart rate variability, you can improve longevity. Well, we got to ask the question, what's the deal with breathing in a mask? <laughs> breathing in a mask. Oh, are you talking about with COVID? I'm talking about with COVID. I'm sure that's your number one DM these days. Yeah. You know, like, like I wear a mask if I go out in public. Um, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. I've heard some crazy stuff. I've heard, you know, wearing a mask is going to cause brain damage. Listen, people, surgeons have been wearing masks for decades during operations. And they've been wearing masks for maybe two-hour operation to maybe a four-hour, five-hour operation for long periods of time. Now, it's unlikely that a surgeon would continue to wear a mask if there was any sort of chance of brain damage from hypoxia. Number one is wearing a mask doesn't cause hypoxia. It can't. It cannot. Now, if you wear a mask with pulse oximeter on, if you're monitoring your blood oxygen saturation while wearing a mask, it is normal that your blood oxygen saturation will drop a little bit. And the reason being is because with wearing a mask, you pool carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide is coming from the exhale breath. As you breathe into the mask, you're pooling carbon dioxide in the mask, and then you are rebreathing that partly carbon dioxide laden air back into the lungs. That's increasing carbon dioxide in the blood. That in turn is causing what's called a bore effect, that hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen in the blood, releases oxygen more readily to the tissues. And as hemoglobin releases oxygen more readily to the tissues, it will show as a slight reduction in the SpO2. So you can see a slight drop in your blood oxygen saturation, but we have to look at it this way. The reason that there's a drop is due to an increase of carbon dioxide. That hemoglobin is releasing oxygen to the tissues. So wearing the mask is actually increasing oxygen delivery throughout the body. But here's the thing. People put on the mask, they feel slightly suffocated due to the elevated CO2, and as a result, they open their mouth, they breathe faster, they breathe shallow, and that in turn is feeding to fatigue, panic, anxiety, and suffocation. They are doing it entirely the wrong way. So I put a video up on Oxygen Advantage channel, I don't know, about a month ago on YouTube, and I went through the exact instructions of how to breathe. If you're wearing a mask and, you know, for prolonged periods of time, how can you breathe to optimize alveolar ventilation? How can you breathe to minimize the effects of it? And I would say breathe through your nose, breathe light, slow and deep. That improves, improves your breathing efficiency. Um, so breath, breath, breath by breath, you're getting more oxygen uptake in the blood. And, you know, that feeling of air hunger, don't worry, that's not because you're deprivation of oxygen. But I can understand how a person might feel they're wearing a mask, they're feeling suffocated. Now they might think, oh my God, my oxygen levels are dropping. This is going to be damaging to my health. No, it's not. The air hunger is because of an increase of CO2. And there is so much misinformation out there about it. It's really, really crazy. You know, 
I feel comfortable two things with COVID. Breathe through the nose. And if I was in a situation that I thought somebody was around me that was infected, breathe hardly any air or hold your breath and get the hell out of there. And ideally, if somebody is infected, they should be also breathing through the nose. Now, you can imagine somebody who is infected. The first, well, one of the first things that changes is that the respiratory rate gets faster. As you're infected with any respiratory condition, typically the respiratory rate gets faster. If the respiratory rate gets faster, and it's normal that you would feel air hunger. And as you feel air hunger, the individual who is infected is going to switch to mouth breathing. And as they exhale out through the mouth, there's 42% greater water loss. You've got a much greater aerosol going into the atmosphere. That aerosol or the theory behind COVID is that it's transmitted um, via water particles, via an aerosol. And if, if you're in a family, so you have a family member infected, the individual is caught for breath a little bit. They're fast breathing, mouth breathing. They're emitting all of this into the into the room. And then you've got other family members who are inhaling it. Like it's really, like the public health authorities, again, unfortunately, breathing doesn't get the attention. Washing hands. We should be told to be breathing through the nose as well. And we should be told to breathe light. You know, so, you know, even there was one, I put out in a, another video back in March and then, a number of doctors wrote an article that was published in one of the journals about taping them out at night. And they said, anecdotal evidence um, shows that if you tape up them out at night, it reduces viral load because it's giving the immune system sufficient chance to be able to fight the virus. And I've seen it for 20 years, people who have chest infections, um, colds, that we could reduce this quite significantly by changing their breathing patterns. And coming back to the children, like we brought out a tape called Myotape specifically to get children breathing through the nose during the day and during sleep. And we put all of the children's exercises out there for free of charge. Like if you put my name into YouTube, you put in children's breathing exercises, every breathing exercise is free for kids because I wanted this to get out there. You know, there there is a reluctance um, in terms of getting the information out there by the medical profession unfortunately now we've some brilliant doctors we have some brilliant ear nose and throat doctors we have some amazing orthodontists and some amazing individuals from the united states like dr william hang down in the gora hills in california um kevin boyd dr james bronson and there's a huge there's quite a significant amount of orthodontists that get this but in the main they haven't got it so what i want to do is well let's get the information out there get it out direct to the hands of the general public. And I've just written a new book and it won't be published for about six months or so, but it's looking at the application of breathing exercise for type one diabetes, for epilepsy, looking at female breathing, which is primarily very much different to male breathing because of the change of hormones, looking at the development of children, of course, and sleep and, you know, asthma and all of those things as well. So I think, you know, it's really tremendous. Brett has has really lifted off in the last six months to a year. And one one reason why was a book by James Nestor called Breath. And James wrote a brilliant, accessible book. He's a journalist and he doesn't have a biased interest the way I might have it because I've worked in this field. And of course, you know, I love it and that's the way it is. And I want to get the information out there. But he's he's approaching it from a more objective point of view. 
But if you were to read The Oxygen Advantage and then you read Brett and you'll see many parallels there. And that is about what we are trying to put out there, that it is the potential of changing your breathing patterns. And I'm not saying it's a cure-all, but when you look at what we can do by changing breathing, how we can influence the automatic functioning of the body, conditions are, you know, that are normally outside of our control, but yet we can influence them through our breathing. And many common conditions of civilization that we can help, we can help those conditions simply by changing breathing. And you might ask, well, if it's so good, why hasn't it been put out there? Well, I was on a podcast with a group of orthodontists. Well, it was actually a panel and James Nestor was there. And the question came up, why hasn't, you know, why hasn't this been embraced by our healthcare? And I said, well, I think the reason being is because people won't make money out of it. That's why. If you, if, if you were a healthcare provider and if you had a promise to become very wealthy by teaching breathing, I absolutely guarantee you, you'd be doing it. But that promise isn't there because it's too time consuming. It's tedious. We're dependent on the, the student putting it into practice. So that's why we're putting it out as much as possible. Get it out there. Get it out for free and get it out to the masses because it, there's really a need for it. Patrick, I, I cannot agree more. Um, everything you're saying is, is super spot on. And um, this has been not only educational, but I think inspirational. And I, uh, I mean, we're going to do whatever we can to continue to pump this out and um, learn more about how to spread the the knowledge of what you've said. And um, I think it's pretty cool to think that, you know, I, I was, I was recently thinking about this, that the, you know, the order of what we need to survive, right. Mm-hmm. The breath is the first thing. And then it's water then it's food mm-hmm. and it's shelter. And it's so interesting that we think about in society in the reverse order, people want a nice house. They want a nice car. Then they might think about getting organic food and then very few people understand the idea of good, clean water, but then really nobody thinks about breathing. And it's like, yeah. you know, we th- we're, you know, we're conditioned in the wrong order. And it was to your exact point, where is the money, right? If you walked into your, your doctor and they said, all right, here's 15 breathing exercises. I'll see you in a week. Yeah. They're not going to make any money from that. And it's an unfortunate thing, you know, but what's cool about it is that it works. I can attest to it working. Um, and the more that we put it out there, the more important people will see it. And then the more ways in which people can can do it, like your coaches make money teaching breathing. So there yes. is ways to turn it into a, a career that fosters you know, wealth and, and growth in that way. So I think it's just really cool because it's – of the highest importance. And I think if we switch the paradigm to believe that and Mm -hmm. people see it work, there's just no limit. Yeah, I fully agree. I can't, I can't add anything more to that, Brett. We, uh, we ask everybody. So at live better, our motto is to have the best day ever, every single day. And we believe that that's possible through choice, um, through responding to stimulus that might come up throughout the day that might be hard. Um, and we really think about that is when like, you know, things get tough and, uh, 
to be able to say and be grateful for all of the things. And so if you could wake up tomorrow, Patrick, um, and maybe it's at 4am, maybe it's not, um, with anything you could do, there's no restrictions, there's no COVID, you can do whatever you want. What is Patrick's best day ever look like? It's very simple. I don't have any aspirations. I'm happy yet with COVID. We're, we're in total lockdown here. It doesn't make any difference to me. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm hiding away from everybody anyway. Um, and You know, it's like I just feel comfortable. I've been really fortunate. I found an occupation which I absolutely love. And, I've, you know, I'm just one of those lucky individuals. So, yeah, I've no wants, I've no wishes. I'm really happy with everything that's going on. Yeah, of course, life will always throw you a few curveballs. Um, and I suppose with the breath itself, I found an occupation that I, that I love. I realized about 25 years ago not to live stuck in my head. And one of the things about Western education is that it teaches us how to think. And it teaches us how to reason and to break information into tiny pieces and, you know, question. And it's almost that we've been taught and trained how to think, but we haven't been trained how to stop thinking. We haven't been taught how to create space between thoughts, how to live in the present moment, how to bring our full attention into what we are doing, how to connect with life through, you know, our sight through our hearing, through our taste, smell, touch, etc. So there's many things and it all ties back to the breath because once you have your attention on your breathing, you're gently softening it, you know you're not having your attention stuck in your head. And as a result, then any worries and you know, a lot of repetitive thought activity that may be very critical. Um and it's becoming unfortunately more common because of social media. Um these companies you know, the the big platforms have not done anything in terms of helping with mental health. And we really need to teach the next generation, don't live stuck in your screens. Don't be living immersed in your phone. Don't give these platforms two and three hours of your daily time. Don't surrender all of your attention outwards. Bring some of that attention inwards. Connect with the intelligence that is your your, your body connect with your breathing, bring a calmness and a quietness to the mind. And if you can quieten the mind and bring a calmness to the mind, the mind is that instrument through which we filter all life's perceptions. And it's really important to have an experience of how it works for you. That was the best answer ever. <laughs> for sure. That was amazing. Uh, Patrick, thank you for, uh, extending your day a little bit longer for us. Um, Jason and I were also up at the right around the same time today. So we, uh, we live in that and we, we love the mornings. Um, and we just want to say thanks for, for taking time for this, for writing your book, for living your, you know, your truth and in, in what it is that you do, because, you know, that's our mission is to help people find what it is that they want to do. And I feel like a lot of people have found it. They're just, you know, either, not in the right state of mind or don't have the tools yet to pursue it. And so it's awesome just to see others that are doing it. And I know that you talk about this every day and the fact that you're super passionate about it every time you speak shows that it is, it is what your purpose is. Um, and so we just want to say thanks for, for being on the show. Where can, uh, where can people find out about more about what you're doing? I know you have certifications in your book. 
Um, where can people find out more so that they can uh, work on their breathing? So thanks very much, guys. Uh, it's a pleasure to to help get this information out there. You know, I always love to embrace it. So um, for sports performance and for fitness, the, the website would be oxygenadvantage.com and Instagram and YouTube channels, etc. even though I give out about social media. <laughs> um, for health, we're talking about Buteco Clinic. So that's people with anxiety, people with panic disorder, people with asthma, people with sleep issues. So there's two different channels. We've got kind of the sports-oriented and performance-based, and we've got the health-oriented um, website as well. Awesome. Patrick, thank you so much, and have the best day ever. You too, guys. Thanks very much, Jason and Brett. Take care.